You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. All right, well, good Sunday morning to all of you. So good to see you here. Thank you for making Radiant a part of your weekend. If you are new with us, thanks for coming out. We especially appreciate you. My name is Marco. I'm the lead pastor here. Thanks for making Radiant a part of your weekend. Hey, I want to give you an update. Uh, last week, I came up on stage and told you that we were gonna, uh, we were ready to close down the Heart for the House campaign, and we did that this past week. And I wanted to give you an update where we ended up at. If you can go ahead and put that slide up. We ended up exceeding our goal. Come on, someone. $36,707.19. Look what the Lord has done. Come on. Give him praise for just a moment. Yes. So we are excited. We are ecstatic for what God is doing in your generosity, uh, those who uh, have sacrificially given for all of these things to take place. And the roof, uh, the construction on the, on the new roof has started uh, on Thursday, by the way. And so they will continue for a couple of weeks or so. And I just want to remind you that this enables us. Listen, this is not another line of credit that we're getting to pay for these things. This is We're, we're paying for them all cash. And so listen... We can be the best steward of of what God has given us so that we don't have all of these crazy payments in over our heads. And uh, thank you for your generosity and for giving to what Jesus is doing here. You know, it's not just the building. I know uh, the building doesn't seem like a big deal to some of you, and I understand that. But what it is about, it's about what happens inside the building, though. It's about what happens uh, with people's lives being transformed in the building. The building's not the point, right? The people are the point. It's the ministry that what God does inside the building. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul, he is encouraging the Corinthians because um, the Macedonians have given to the Christians in Jerusalem who were under great hardship. And the Macedonians themselves, they were in, in some uh, quite difficult space. And Paul wants to encourage the Corinthians. And this is my prayer. This is my prayer for you as well. But let me just show you what the Apostle Paul says. He says this, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously, listen to this promise, will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all good things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Let me just say this, church. I know some of you have sowed sacrificially. You've sowed generously. Can I just say, from the promises of God, you will also reap generously, right? And it's the principle of the sower. It's found in the New Testament This is a principle that you reap whatever you sow. Now, if you have seed and you're not sowing it, don't expect to to reap anything from that. You you have a seed and you have to sow it in in order 
for you to reap a harvest. Does that make sense? Now, if you hold on to your seed, nothing happens with it. Some Christians want to reap a harvest without sowing anything. And that's not a principle that we see in the scripture. The principle we see is that you have to sow it first and then you reap a harvest. But if you're holding on to it out of fear, if you're holding on to it out of greed, then you're missing what the Lord has for you, okay? So this is my prayer for each of you. My prayer is that that the Lord would bless you abundantly, that the Lord would, for every good work, give you the means to be generous and to continue to abound in every good work. So once again, thank you, uh, Radiant Church, for your faithful generosity here. It is making such an impact in our church and in our community. Amen? Amen. Well, let's move on to the message. Today we are in part four of our message series in the book of Acts, and I'm calling it simply the Spirit-Empowered Church. The Spirit-Empowered Church. This is the church full of the Holy Spirit, the church in motion, and what we see or what we looked at last week in Acts chapter 2 is the disciples are in Jerusalem. They've gathered in the upper room, and it's there that Luke reports that what seems like a violent wind just comes and fills that room. And all of a sudden, it's the power of God. The Holy Spirit fills every believer, and they begin to speak in tongues. And if that's offensive to you, simply think of it like this. They're simply speaking in other languages. Don't let that be a, a stumbling block for you. If you came out of a church that doesn't believe or receive the gifts of the Spirit, don't let this be a stumbling block for you. It's simply that they begin to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And what we looked at last week is that the Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit wants to and gives you power. Power for for both ministry. Are you going to share your faith? Are you going to lead a Bible study? Are you going to lead a small group? Are you going to serve with um, the two-year-olds in our children's ministry? Guess what? The Spirit fills you with power to do that very task. The Holy Spirit also gives you power to be uniquely yourself, to be uniquely ourselves, to be and to live the type of life that we know we're called to live. And of course, we we talked about this aspect of speaking in other tongues. And again, instead of us seeing this as strange or even offensive, I want you to see this. What if we approach this in a way or in a manner, it's simply a language reserved for God, and it's an intimate way that we communicate with him. And in the same way that couples who love each other, who've been married for, you know, 20, 30 years or so, share this sort of intimate language or this newlywed, cup, this newlywed couple, the way they speak to one another. It's almost like they share a common language. What if we looked at it in the same exact way? And this morning, I want to pick things up in Acts chapter 2. And this is near the end of the chapter. And uh, what Luke tells us is that Jews from all over the world, have gathered there in Jerusalem. And this has uh, caused quite a ruckus. And they're all gathered there, and they begin to hear their own languages spoken. And this is, like, amazing. So they are in awe. They're in wonder. Now, some of them are a bit offended. And what they do is they think that the disciples have been drinking too much wine. They're like, are these guys drunk? What's going on? So they're a bit skeptical of what is happening. Peter, we all know Peter, right? 
Peter, who has this newfound courage, guess what? It's power from the Holy Spirit. Remember Peter? He's the guy, just in case you don't know your Bible very well, it's okay, we love you. But if you don't know your Bible very well, Peter denied Jesus three times. Y'all remember that? He denied, you ever screw up in your Christian walk? I screwed up. Peter screwed up big time, though. (laughs) He denied Jesus three different times. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is Jesus, or Peter here, full of the boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit. He preaches a sermon. This is crazy. The guy who was a coward, who was a chicken, who rejected and really denied Jesus, now is full of the Holy Spirit, preaching a powerful sermon. And this sermon has quite an effect on the people there. And this morning, what I want to do is I simply want to look at this response. I want to I look at the response of the people from Peter's sermon and I, I, really want to, I really want us to examine our response to the gospel message. What is our response? What's your response to the gospel? And you're like, Marco, I'm a Christian already. It's not a big deal. No, 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 no. I want to ask you, and maybe you're not a believer here, or maybe you're on the fence, or maybe you, you used to be Catholic, and now you're no longer Catholic, and you're like, you don't know what you are. You are Catholic, Baptist, Costal. You, you're, all, you're, something all, you're something all mixed up, but you're here this morning. Thank you for being here. I'm asking you the question, how do you respond to the gospel? Because this is what we see. This is what we see happen here is a response to the gospel. And so let's pick it up. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 37 right now. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it behind me on the screen here, and you can follow along as well. Acts 2, 37, here's what Luke says. We'll look at this one verse, and then we'll pray. Luke says this, when the people heard this... The sermon. He's talking about the sermon that Peter just preached. Because most of Acts chapter 2 is Peter's sermon. It's worth reading, by the way. When the people heard this, they were caught to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? Let's pray for a few moments Father in heaven, uh, we love you, and we are celebrating your goodness and your faithfulness, God. And I think of that song that Adam sang, Worthy Are You, Lord. Wow. Man, there's nothing, there's no other words that I can just think of right now but to say you are worthy. You are worthy of praise or adoration. You are worthy of our lives completely surrendered to you. And so, Father, we give you our hearts, and we place Jesus on the throne of our heart this morning, and we ask that you might unlock deaf ears and open blind eyes. Spirit of God, would you bring a fresh conviction on your people this morning? Would you bring renewal and revival in this house, God? And when there is prayer in the house, there will be praise in the streets, God. And so do it in us first, Lord. We ask, God, we open our lives to you, God, and we pray that you might reveal yourself through these verses in the Bible and that we might encounter you in a new, fresh, and powerful way. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen, amen. Well, decision is a common word, decision. There are 
decisive people and indecisive people. Have you ever lived, <laughs> well, lived, whoops. Have you ever met, I'm thinking about marriages. Have you ever met someone who was an indecisive person? I mean, it's almost enough to drive you batty, right? It's like, hey, what do you want to eat tonight? I don't know. Hey, do you want to make plans for tomorrow night? I don't know. Hey, what are you going to do with your life? I don't know. Hey, what do you feel like watching tonight on Netflix? I don't know. That's awesome. Thank you for your input. I appreciate you. Wow. Right? <laughs> An indecisive person can drive us crazy. There's also what we call decision fatigue. When we're talking about decisions, I think a lot of you know what this feels like. You've experienced this. If you're a boss over other people, maybe you lead a staff, you are a principal, you are the head of your business, you probably have experienced decision fatigue. Can I get an amen, right? Amen, amen right? Moms in the house have experienced decision fatigue. That means this, that, and I'm choosing an arbitrary number, that after, you know, 100 or so decisions in the day that you've made, the 101st decision always seems nearly impossible, doesn't it? It seems nearly impossible to make that decision. Why? Because you're tired, you're worn out, I mean, you're just exhausted. You cannot possibly make another decision. Maybe you've been there as a mom, you've been there as a boss, you know what decision fatigue is all about. There are some decisions that can be avoided, right? And there are other decisions that cannot. The famous American philosopher and psychologist of the 1800s, William James, called these types of decisions forced options. Maybe you've heard of this. Forced options. A forced option is a decision that you make because of the nature of the situation. It forces you to choose either one or the other. And if you avoid one or if you postpone the decision, you're, you're automatically choosing the other thing. And if you can't seem to make a decision on one, you're automatically, by default, making a decision for the other thing. Maybe you've been there before. You're, you're deciding, hey, well, I just I can't make that decision right now. I'm not going to choose. But you're actually choosing the other thing by postponing or by avoiding that choice. Now, the Bible confronts us. I don't know if you knew this, but the Bible confronts us uh, with a forced option. And that forced option is, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. How is it a forced option, you might ask? Well, it's this. To choose to postpone following Jesus is actually a decision to not follow Jesus. Okay? To choose to postpone. You're like, I, I just, you know what, I don't, I'm not going to, I can't, I, I can't make that decision right now to follow Jesus. It's just too much. Well, in reality, what you're actually choosing is to not follow Jesus for that time being. It's a forced option. And here in Acts chapter 2, after hearing Peter's message, the, the, the Jews that were gathered there that heard Peter's message, they come to Peter and they say, brothers, what shall we do? Right? They've heard the truth of Jesus, the reality of sin, and the weight of that sermon, the weight of that message was so 
heavy, so heavy, they knew, they knew it necessitated a decision right then and there. In fact, it pierced their hearts. Luke tells us in Acts 2, he says that they were cut to the heart. A decision was necessary. Can I just tell you, church, this morning, wherever you're at on your journey, I know some of you have been following him for, for a long time, and I respect that. Or maybe you're, again, you're just sort of figuring things out, and that's cool too. We love you. We're, we're happy you're here. But can I just tell you this morning and remind you that the gospel necessitates a decision? Can I just tell you that? The gospel of Jesus Christ necessitates a decision. And if you're thinking, well, I'm just going to postpone it, Marco. I'm just going to do me for a few years. Um, and then when I find that girl who's a Christian, I'm going to marry her. And we're going to have a Christian household. And she's going to be a good, nice, sweet girl. She's not going to get in any trouble. Right? What you're saying is you're choosing to follow Jesus later on, but not right now. That's what you're saying. And I want you to notice what Peter says in response. Verse number 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you. He's looking at this crowd. There's about, you know, 3,000 people or so there. Every one of you, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. In other words, it's not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles, and it's not just for you who are here, but it's for generations in the future. That's what Peter is trying to say here. For all whom the Lord our God will call. I think that's interesting. He says that. So here's what I want to do. I kind of want to get back to basics. I was going to preach on more this morning, but then as I was studying, I was so sort of just drawn to these few verses right here that I was like, I got to, this is it. I'm going to hang out here and that's, it is what it is. Church has got to deal with it, right? I was going to look at some verses afterwards, but we'll get to that next week. Next week, we're going to talk about what does a spirit-filled church look like? I'm, I'm excited for that one. What does a spirit-filled church look like? But this morning, I want to talk about four essentials, four essentials in the conversion experience, or four things that must happen or that happen when you become a Christian. We're going to go back to basics. I promise you it's not too basic. I think it needs to be said. And there are some of you here who you don't know these basics or you haven't experienced these yet. These are important, okay? Peter calls four things that happen in the conversion experience. The first thing that Peter mentions is this, is repentance, is repentance. And we're going to focus in on this one a lot today, so buckle up because I'm bound to offend you or make you uncomfortable. Repentance, right? I think so often right now in the Western church, we don't like to talk about repentance. Why? Because repentance makes us uncomfortable. And because we don't often talk about repentance in the church, right, we, we like to talk about your best life now. We like to talk about five ways to, to get a better job. We like to talk about three, three different workout regimes or whatever to give you a bigger biceps in the church. We like to talk about how to make your marriage you know, divorce-proof, but we don't like to talk about repentance. But my fear is if we don't talk about repentance, that it might give some of you an inaccurate view of Christianity. So I'm going to talk about repentance. Many of you, um, you a lot of you know because you're smart people, 
Um, you know the, the, the famous German theologian, pastor, and eventual martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Ring about anybody? Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was prolific in his writing and in his preaching. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's quite stinging. And in his book, this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. He says this, Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Ooh. Baptism without church discipline. Ouch. Communion without confession. Oh. Cheap grace is grace without discipline, right? Without discipleship. That's what Bonhoeffer is talking about here. Forgiveness without preaching what? Repentance, right? The idea is that Bonhoeffer is getting at this, that grace is not cheap. That grace is actually costly. It's so expensive. It's so costly that it costs Jesus his very life. Grace is not cheap. And for this reason, listen, I think it's really important that Peter starts here. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. That's the first thing, brothers. Repent. I love the way that theologian Wayne Grudem defines repentance because some of you may not understand what this means. Wayne Grudem gives a definition I think is really helpful for us. He says this, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to what? To forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. You can leave that up there for just a few moments. It's a heartfelt sorrow for sin. There are some Christians who don't even feel bad about sinning anymore. What is the state of our church right now where Christians don't feel remorse about sin? I've been battling that as a pastor, trying to understand that, where Christians want me to approve of their sinful choices and lifestyle. And I just say, bro, I can't do that. Sister, I, cannot, I can't come into agreement with you. It's a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a, you renounce it. That means you're, you're pushing back on it. You reject it. And it's a commitment to forsake and walk in obedience to Christ. Listen, everyone loves the idea of the forgiveness of sins. Do we not, right? We, we love that. I love that. You should love that. And we say, man, how incredible is it that God forgives sins? Man, isn't that good news, right? How incredible is it that Jesus has forgiven us on the cross? How amazing is it that Jesus has made a way for us? Man, that's a beautiful thing. But my fear, my fear in the state of Christianity right now in the church, right now, 2021, my fear is that, that if we're not careful, we're a people who want the forgiveness part, but we don't want the repentance part. Come on, I'm preaching right now. We want the forgiveness part. God, forgive me. I messed up last night. I mean, we were alone, and she was looking good. I mean, you get it. Come on, Jesus, you understand, right? And, oh, you know, I, was, I, I drank a little bit too much of this. I smoked a little bit too much of that. I was with that group of people. I, you know what? But you forgive, God. You're so good. You're so good. And we're a people, and we love forgiveness, but we don't love the repentance part over here. 
And my fear is that Christianity is becoming watered down. And simply this, hey, I can empty my sin bucket every Sunday morning and start afresh, and I never need to seek a life of repentance. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible talks about this continual repentance. It's what they felt in that moment, though. They were cut to the heart. You see, repentance is when we realize that sin is wrong. It's an intellectual decision that we make. We realize that sin is wrong. And then what? And then we embrace the teaching of Scripture. And then we begin to what? To forsake sin on purpose. Like we purposefully do so. It's quite amazing, right? We embrace the teaching of Scripture and we reject sin. Repentance is literally a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. You have a change of mind first. First, God has to change your mind about a thing before he can change a thing. And when he changes your mind about sin, then your behavior will follow. But if you, in your own heart, say, yeah, I don't feel bad. I'm good. Everything's great. Well, guess what? Your behavior will follow that realm of thinking. You won't live a repentant life, a life that's bearing the fruit of repentance. Can I just say this morning and remind you, church, wherever you're at this morning, can I just remind you that Jesus is better than your sin? Jesus is better than your sin. If you're here and you're on the fence, if you're here and you're playing church, if you're here and you're trying to sleep around, I'm calling you out. If you're here and you're like, I can live with her, I can live with him, it ain't a big deal, I'm calling you out this morning. If you're here, can I just tell you that Jesus is better than your sin? I know it's uncomfortable. I get it. Jesus is better than the momentary pleasure that sin will bring you. Jesus is better than the false sense of identity that you get when you sin. Jesus is better than that partial fulfillment that you feel when you partake in sin. Jesus is better than your pride. Jesus is better than your stubborn self-reliance. Jesus is better than your way. Jesus is better than my way. Can I just remind you, Jesus is better than your sin. And so you're holding on to something that's a counterfeit when Jesus is so much better. He's so much better. I want to remind you this morning that a decision to say yes to Jesus is also a decision to say no to sin. And I'm afraid that in the church today, this does not get talked about very often. We like to talk about me, you. I'm the center of the world. Well, you're not the center of the world. Jesus is. I'm not the center of the universe. Jesus is. Okay? A decision to say yes to Jesus is also a decision to say no to sin. And this is so important. Why do I talk about this this morning? Marker, you're being so controversial. Marker, you're being a bit mean. My feelings are a little bit hurt. You'll be okay, I promise. (laughs) This is so important because um, several years ago, and I think it actually exists right now in certain sort of pockets of evangelicalism, there was a movement that we know as, that we call hyper-grace. The movement is known as hyper-grace. Now, grace is good. We should talk a lot about grace. I am all for grace, okay? And you should be all for grace too, okay? But the term hyper-grace has been used to describe 
a teaching that emphasizes the grace of God to the exclusion of other vital teachings like what? Repentance and confession. Hypergrace, listen, is an emphasis on the grace of God, but to the exclusion of repentance and confession, right? In other words, listen, hypergrace teachers pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. So the grace of God now becomes a license to sin. Does that make sense to you? The grace of God becomes a license to sin. And I'm preaching to myself this morning as well. That's hyper grace. Right? I can do what I want. God will forgive me. I can still do that on the weekends. God will forgive me. It's fine. God forgives sin. You know, God is a God of love, Marco. Did you know that? He is so loving and kind and gracious. Amen. And I'm like, yes. But he's also just. He's also holy. Let us not forget of the complete character of God. And let us not emphasize one to the exclusion of other character traits. Church, let me just say this this morning, that genuine repentance results in a changed life. Okay? Genuine repentance results in a changed life life. It doesn't result in your excuses right? and my excuses. It doesn't result in me trying to get my way, you trying to weasel your way through something. No, a genuine repentance results in a changed life because a decision to follow Jesus is, is a decision at the same time to say no to sin. It doesn't mean that we're all of a sudden perfect, but it does mean that our behavior starts to change and that People around us begin to see that change, right? They see that change in us. I don't know if you knew this, but Jesus, Jesus preached repentance. He preached repentance. Matthew 4, 17, let me show you. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. This is Jesus' words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And, and leave that verse up there for just a moment. This is Matthew chapter 4. Can I just tell you, this is early in the ministry of Jesus just in case you're thinking, oh, yeah, but Marco, he added that, like, the, the latter half of his preaching ministry. That's, like, later on. And like, no, no, no. <laughs> this is like, he came out of the gate swinging. Repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus didn't say, hey, hold on. You can have your cake and you can eat it too. Jesus says, no, no, no. Let it go. Turn away from it. Forsake it. Why? Because I'm here. Jesus is here. And the kingdom of God is near you. Peter says, repent. It's a message for the church back then. It's a message for us today as well. Next, Peter highlights this. He highlights water baptism, water baptism. And in the New Testament, we see this as a pattern um, for believers that when people, when people come, become Christians, they are then water baptized. They're immersed in water. They go under the water, and then they come back up. We call that baptism, right? And um, literally, this is a symbol. It's an outward expression of an inward reality or an outward expression of an, of an inward symbol. It's really you're, you're, you're telling the whole world. It's a public declaration of personal faith in Jesus Christ. You're telling the world, hey, I'm with Jesus, I'm a believer now. If you are a Christian, 
and you've not been water baptized, I want to invite you to, 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 to be water baptized here, right up here um, in a nice warm hot tub. I promise you it feels really great. And on November 28th, we're going to have baptisms once again, and it's going to be an incredible celebration. And I'm inviting you, if you have not made that choice, that's your next step. Peter says, repent and what? And be baptized. This is your next step. If you haven't taken that next step, go to RadiantBC.com. Click on the next steps. <laughs> Follow the directions, right? So why are we to be water baptized? Well, I'll explain this pretty quickly. On the website, there's going to be a, um, we're going to upload a, uh, I just got done filming a brand new video, a teaching video for that. It's only seven minutes, really short teaching video on the significance of water baptism. We're going to upload that either tonight or tomorrow. That'll be there if you want to know more information. But listen, Jesus himself commanded every believer to be water baptized. So that's number one. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. You can look that up for yourself. Jesus takes the next step, and he himself was baptized. John the Baptist, he was kind of a crazy guy in the New Testament, had long hair, he was a little bit wild, on the wild side. I think he ate locusts, which is a crazy diet, right? Um, and he was kind of a wild child. And John the Baptist baptized Jesus. So Jesus actually takes that next step, and he himself was the, our example. But then also this, it's a way that we identify with Jesus. I don't know if you knew this, but this is a way that we say, I'm with Jesus. Let me, let me just look at uh, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Paul says this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so when a person goes under the water, we're identifying with the death and the burial of Jesus. And when that person comes out of the water, we're identifying with the resurrected Christ. It's an identification with Jesus. We're walking in newness of life, okay? So Jesus commanded it, and we see here Peter echoing the words of Jesus. So if you haven't been water baptized, I would love for you to participate. It's an amazing event. Bring your whole family because, I mean, it's a celebration, you guys. It's incredible. The next thing that Jesus mentions, or that Peter mentions, sorry, Peter mentions this, the forgiveness of sins, right? The forgiveness of sins. He says, repent and be baptized. What? For the forgiveness of sins. So when you become a Christian, right, you're, you're repenting of a sinful lifestyle. You're being water baptized, right? And then you're receiving the forgiveness of Christ. It's amazing. This is the way Paul puts it in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Such good news. Paul says this, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Can I just say this this morning? The king of glory has forgiven your sin in Jesus Christ, when you seek repentance. Man, isn't that amazing? Isn't that good news? Wow. He's canceled your debt. You owed God a debt that you could not pay. I owed God a debt that I could not pay. And Jesus, through the work of the cross, has canceled that debt. And Jesus himself 
has taken the penalty for our sin upon himself so that I wouldn't have to die, so that you wouldn't have to die, so that you wouldn't have to go to a cross bloodied and almost nearly naked, shameful. You wouldn't have to do that, but Jesus bled and died for you. He died for me. What a wonderful Savior we have in Jesus. Yes. Finally, Peter mentions the receiving of the Holy Spirit. He says that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what we've been talking about, of course, for the last probably three Sundays or so. This idea that the Holy Spirit is the presence and the power of God with you and within you. He's not just with you, but he's within you. And it's the Holy Spirit who gives you power to live a life that's pleasing to God He gives you power to choose Jesus over sin. It's the Holy Spirit that fills us with power. And so what we see here this morning, and what I felt like needed to be highlighted today, was simply this this verse in Acts 2.38, this idea of, it seems to be, that the dominant theme here is repentance. It's repentance first And that repentance actually leads us into other things. It's repentance that paves the way for what? For water baptism. It's repentance that now enables us to what? To receive the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. It's repentance that allows us to what? To receive the work, the person of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, listen, this promise is for you, but not only you, for for generations to come forever and ever, for not just Jewish people, but, but for all of us. I think most of us, my guess is we're probably Gentiles, for Jew and Gentile. This is an amazing promise. Peter says, listen, repent, and then what? Receive the rest of these benefits that God has given us through and in Jesus Christ. Today I felt like this message or this focus, I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, Marco, hang out on repentance. It's not comfortable. It's not popular, but it's necessary. I felt like that needed to be our focus today. But as I was thinking about this message and studying this this week, do you know what the opposite of repentance is? And I was thinking, I don't think this is necessarily a academic answer, But I think this is the answer. I think the opposite of repentance is a calloused and hardened heart. It's a calloused and hardened heart. It's knowing what the Lord says. It's knowing what Jesus commanded. It's even knowing what God is, the the issues that God is trying to, to highlight in your heart, and yet you ignore it. That's the hardened heart. Can I just tell you that you can be a Christian and have a calloused heart? You can read your Bible every day. You can pray every day. You can serve in the local church here at Radiant every Sunday and still have a hardened heart. Still have a calloused heart, a heart closed off to Jesus. And I, and I know this is, this is the easy thing to do, to close our hearts off. I know. Why? Because, because when we're... Because when we open our hearts, when we feel conviction, we feel exposed, don't we? We feel vulnerable. 
We feel naked. We feel, well, again, vulnerable, uncomfortable. But here's what I want to remind you this morning. The author of Hebrews writes this, Hebrews 3, 7 through 10. This is so important for us. It says this, so as the Holy Spirit says. Now, he's referring back to the children of Israel, okay, in, in Exodus in the Old Testament here. Today, if you hear his voice, and this is for you, uh, I want us to read this as if this is, God's talking to us right now, okay? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. Did you know that you can be a Christian, a follower, someone serving, a church goer, and yet you can have a hardened heart, a calloused heart? Why do we have hardened hearts? Well, here's why. Because sometimes we get offended, okay? Sometimes we're offended with another person. Sometimes we're offended with our spouse. Sometimes we're offended at, you're offended at your pastor. <laughs> it's me. Sometimes um, your feelings get hurt by someone. Sometimes it's purposeful. Other times it's not purposeful. Sometimes your feelings get hurt. Sometimes your heart gets trampled on by the world. And so if that happens and you, you continually bury that, you continually push it down, what happens is that layer upon layer upon layer covers your heart and you have a hardened heart, a calloused heart, a heart that no longer bows to the, to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And you can go to church all you want and you can serve and you, you, can, you can be an usher and you can work in kids' ministry you, you, whatever it is that God has called you to do, you can do that and you can still have a calloused heart, a hardened heart. You can have a hardened heart because you feel like God let you down in the past. Can I get an amen for someone? You can have a hardened heart because you feel like God owes you something. You can have a hardened heart because you feel like God has let you down in the past. And you can continue to come to church. You can, can, you can lift your hands in worship, and you can have a hardened heart. What does that mean? So what is the result of that? That means that you, the Spirit of God is trying to, to get you to get an issue in your heart, and you just keep ignoring them. Not today. Instead of not today, Satan, it's not today, Jesus. <laughs> not today, Spirit. Not today. I'm not dealing with that old hurt. I'm not dealing with that wound. I'm not dealing with that pride. I'm not dealing with that insecurity. I'm not dealing with the way that I talked to my spouse yesterday. I'm not dealing the, with how I treated my kids. Can I just tell you, there have been times where I've yelled at my kids, and in that moment, the Spirit of God convicted me so bad that in that, that next moment, I had to apologize to my kids. In that next moment, I had to get on my knees and say, can you forgive Daddy? I was too harsh with you. But if your heart is hardened, you'll, you'll hear the voice. You'll ignore it, and then it goes away. 
it goes away. And the harder your heart becomes, can I just tell you, the less you start to hear it. The less you start to hear it. And today, the Lord would say from Hebrews, if you hear my, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. I know there's wounds. I know there's pride. I know there's ego. I know there's circumstances. I know whatever it is in your case, because I don't know your case. You know it, though. You know it. You do know it. If you just think about it for a few moments, you know it. It's the Spirit of God wants to lead you in that today. And for some of you, I'm talking to both non-Christians and Christians this morning. The Spirit of God would say, repent, to bear life, to bear fruit with repentance. Don't let it be something that you just experienced when you first met Jesus. Let it be continual. Let it be a regular part of your life. Oh, that God might bring repentance in Radiant Church. Oh, that the church at large would be a repentant church. Oh, that the church globally might fall on her knees in repentance. What would the Spirit of God do to reignite the flame, to bring revival in the city, in this nation? Oh, what God would do. And so we're just going to close in a moment. And I want you to respond. That, that might mean you want to get on your knees. That might mean you want to bow your head. That might mean you close your eyes. That might mean you even come up as a symbol. And I'm, I'm going to leave you alone, so don't worry. I'm not going to come up to you. And on prayer team, don't approach that person. Let them do business with God. And this is between you and the Lord. It's not between you and me. It's not between you and an elder. It's between you and the Lord. I'm just going to give you... 30 seconds, 60 seconds. James is going to play. And I want us to just respond. You can respond in prayer, and then I'm, I'll lead us in prayer after a few moments. So let's just take a moment. Maybe just posture yourself in a, in a place of prayer right now. Let's just respond. Come, Holy Spirit, and bring repentance in this house. And soften hardened hearts and calloused hearts, hearts that have been trampled over because of relationships, because of letdowns, because of insecurities, because of old wounds. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts, church. Don't harden your heart. Bear fruit in a life with repentance. Come on, the Spirit of God wants to bring a life that bears fruit in you and I today. But if you are stubborn, you harden your heart to Him, you won't hear His voice. 
that voice will grow fainter and fainter. Spirit of God, come. God, we were sorry. God, forgive us for not always putting you first. God, forgive us of putting more of our time towards football or towards basketball than to you, God. God, forgive us for being addicted to TV but never opening our Bibles. God, forgive us for serving but never reading Scripture on a daily basis. God, forgive us for playing church but not knowing you. God, forgive us for the times where we have been harsh with our spouse. Come melt hearts this morning. God, forgive us when we've taken our anger out on our kids. Come melt hearts this morning. God, as a, as a byproduct of repentance, God, we receive forgiveness of sins, God. Your grace that abounds, God. Your grace that abounds and more and more and more. God, your grace stretches to one end of the earth to the next. God, your grace that abounds. We receive now your love, God. God, as we bow our hearts to you, we seek repentance, God. May you change lives this morning, God. I believe you're going you're gonna to spark the flame in hearts this morning, God. God, you're going to take idle Christians and you're going to make them alive in you. You're going to take Christians who have been sitting on the wayside and you're going to light a fire in their hearts. God, right now, I'm believing right now prophetically, God, that your husband and wives are coming together in more intimacy, drawing near to you and drawing near to one another right now. God, right now you're convicting fathers who've been absent right now by the Spirit of God, who've been absent, who've ne neglected their children. God, you're convicting them of sin. God, you're, you're bringing healing in families right now, Lord. God, you're bringing reconciliation right now. God, I can't see it, but I know I sense it, Lord, and, and you're doing a work in our hearts, God. God, prodigals that we're praying for, God, right now you're, you're calling them back to you, Lord, right now. Come on, every heart abandoned, every eye closed. Just a few more moments. Spirit of the living God, we give this to you. There's nowhere that, we, that we'd rather be than here in your presence. There's nothing more important than what you're doing right now in our hearts, God. God, right now you're changing the DNA of a family right now, God. Right now. We thank you for it, God. We thank you for forgiveness and grace that Jesus gives us over and over and over again. What a wonderful Savior we have in Jesus. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name.